there might be more use cases that arise uh, as a result of COVID-19. And we need to then transform ourselves digitally, use IT more so that we allow mobility of patients as well as the healthcare providers. Welcome to Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Healthineers, the podcast where we talk with renowned experts from around the world about the impact they're making on the future of medical technology. Today, Managing Board Member Dr. Christoph Sindel interviews Dr. Noel Yeo, the Senior Vice President at Parkway Hospitals in Singapore at Parkway Pantai. It is one of Asia's largest integrated private healthcare groups. Dr. Yeo has an Executive Master's of Business Administration, a postgraduate certificate in Medical Law and Ethics, and an Executive Diploma in Directorship. Our conversation begins today with Dr. Yeo providing some insight on how his hospital in Singapore managed operations during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Having experienced the SARS-CoV outbreak in 2003, Dr. Sindel asks how that helped them prepare for SARS-CoV-2 in 2020. Dr. Noel, since you are located in Singapore, it's a logical question. How has Singapore dealt with the COVID-19 outbreak? The country actually experienced other virus outbreaks before. Was Singapore better prepared than other countries in your point of view? Thanks, Christoph, for, you know, for the session today. I will start by letting you know that Singapore had a rough experience in the past during 2003. That was when SARS hit Asian countries, especially in Central Asia and Southeast Asia. At that time, I was only a medical student. I, I recall being in my final year and it was, uh, I would say it was very chaotic. You know, we have some healthcare workers who passed away from the illness. Uh, it was a difficult time. And because of that experience, Singapore learned from it and made several you know, advancements and changes in healthcare, especially in the way we dealt with um, pandemics. Uh, so we have invested in healthcare infrastructure we created new national policies addressing infection control and also we identified uh, supply chains that were necessary for producing consumables that we use like masks or personal protection equipment. I think one big example was that we had a 330-bit national center for infectious diseases planned and built after the SARS experience. That 330 Beds, right? They are all negative pressure rooms. So it was a center that was specially made just to accommodate infectious uh, cases. And also at the national level, there was a ministry move, which is to maintain a national stockpile of N95 masks and personal protection equipment. Uh, so all these are things that our government in Singapore did in order to save for a rainy day. And that rainy day has arrived early this year when COVID-19 hit us. Add on that, despite having all this preparation for years, right, I don't find that any country in this world could ever know the extent of how COVID-19 could have affected them. There are many other countries 
also found themselves to be inadequate, even though there were preparations. And I think likewise, Singapore also had certain areas of concern at the start of COVID-19 pandemic. No two outbreaks are the same. So systems of response will vary depending on the type of virus that you're trying to contain. Their response to COVID-19 was based on a three-point strategy. I think broadly, the strategy that Singapore adopted during this outbreak was uh, three things. Number one was to test, right? Test as many people whom we suspect to be high-risk cases as far as possible, right? Because if you don't test, you won't know who has the virus or not. Then after testing, the second thing would be trace. Right? You need to trace the close contacts of people who are positive for COVID-19. So that is a way for us to then limit the transmission of the disease right, among close contacts. Because you have contacts of contacts, contacts of contacts and contacts, and it just goes on. It's like this uh, a web of people that could keep allowing the illness to be transmitted. So therefore, the second step of tracing is very critical. And coming to the last step, which is to treat, what we do is we isolate people as quickly as possible. We, you know, we provide them with management that uh, supports them. If they need ICU care, you, know, you must ensure you have sufficient ventilators, sufficient manpower to look after these people so that they can tie through that acute phase. And once people are stabilized, then you need to determine that are they still infectious or not, right? If they're longer infectious, fine, they can be back uh, into the community. But if they remain infectious, perhaps one way is to transfer these patients who are already stable and pass the acute phase of the illness to isolation facilities, right? For them to recuperate until the illness is no longer infectious. And the reason is because we have to prepare for the next wave. We need to prepare and make sure that the healthcare resources in treating the acute part of the illness is not strained. That's why you have to have hospitals who are ready for treating the acute part of the illness. Then you have facilities, right, for step down care, uh, for isolation. These are all parts of the chain of treatment for uh, dealing with COVID 19, which I have observed over the last few months. So therefore, in summary, we can remember that by three things, you test, you trace, and you treat. That is the strategy which Singapore has adopted. And I think the results have been reasonably well. Yeah, this is very impressive, uh, Dr. Noel. And what you are saying in essence is, yes, the COVID-19 situation came also as a surprise and pretty intense to Singapore, but you had already a pretty good preparation based on SARS and based on the experience you have undergone through, through former pandemics, right? That's very impressive. In terms of tracing, have okay. you also used in Singapore applications? I mean, we have this COVID-19 warning app in uh, yes. Germany, for example, right? Have you applied similar tools? Yes, in Singapore, there were two national apps, right, that were being pushed out during this period. One is called uh, Trace Together. It uses Bluetooth technology, right? You load the app onto your phone, you keep your Bluetooth function on, and when everyone keeps this app with the Bluetooth on, it will detect one another. It stores the information of people who have that app activated as well and coming into close contact with you. And that allows 
should there someone who has been using that trace together app become positive for COVID-19, you can open the app and get the log of the other people or other mobile devices that were in the close vicinity of that person. Yeah, so I think very similar way, Singapore has that kind of application, which Germany obviously has done so. So it's a very wise decision by the government of both countries to implement this. So that's the first app uh, that we has we have uh, you know, rolled out. It's called Trace Together. The second one, right, is called Safe Entry. Now, Safe Entry is an app that is used when you enter any building or premises in Singapore. For example, when we want to enter a shopping mall, there will be QR codes that is unique to the building that is placed at the entrances of the building. So prior to entering, you will take out your mobile phone, you will turn on the camera function, then you aim your phone at the QR code and it will then open up a link for you to click on. And when you click on the link, it then brings you to the site where it allows you to enter your personal details. We have made it easier for residents in Singapore because we have something called MyInfo, which is a national identity platform. So all of us would, would log on using MyInfo and that automatically transmits uh, our personal info into Safe Entry app. And that's how we track people who go into premises. And Safe Entry is not just used for the building. Within the building, every single shop that is uh, operating inside the building or inside the shopping mall, you also need to perform safe entry when you go in, into shops. So, so after entering a building or a shopping mall, you perform safe entry once. Say we want to go for, for uh, food at a restaurant, we head down to the restaurant. and At the restaurant, again, you need to log in using safe entry. So that's how we keep track of people, people's locations in Singapore. I mean, this is fascinating. I mean, it's a serious situation with the pandemic, but it's uh, very impressive. And this is how we know Singapore, right? You take the challenges and you bring a lot of technical and innovative power to the table to solve such things. I'm afraid Germany does still a lot of this safe entry to a restaurant also based on paper. <laughs> Maybe we can learn from each other, yeah. But it's, again, as I said, a very impressive Singapore also started off with paper forms you know, to begin with. So I think it's just the, the fact that Singapore is a small country and because we had the experience of uh, SARS in the past, so that's why we knew that contact tracing is going to be very difficult using paper. And therefore, uh, the government went ahead, got in the IT team to create these apps. So I, I would say it is simply the fact that we had the experience. I, I would think that countries like Germany, for example, it is an eventual outcome that you know the government will head into, right? Because it takes it takes experience, it takes exposure before you realize what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I, I think in, in Germany, and you know, when you look to political decisions and and how we got this a little bit under control, I think we got overwhelmed by it as well as maybe every other country. But I think uh, so far it has it went pretty pretty well in Germany. Yes. Of course, we need to watch out, but. What you said in terms of testing, tracing, and treat, this resonates well. We at uh, Siemens Helsinius, we had a clear mission from the beginning, pretty early during the outbreak, protect the employees, support the customers, and ensure the business continuity. This was our mission and is still our mission. 
as a company developing and manufacturing uh, the tests also for COVID-19, of course, we have also established an employee testing program mm -hmm. where we, uh, you know, do a risk-based approach for the employees. We want to test as meaningfully as possible. We do a baselining, uh, you know, with antibody testing, IgM and IgG, and then followed by a regular ongoing surveillance, surveillance tests through PCR and antibodies. So it's also a combination. I agree with you in essence, yeah, the testing is mission critical. And I think also in Germany, uh, we have understood this and every state tries to apply this as consequent as possible, yeah. One of the issues we've discussed in previous episodes is the effect an influx of COVID-19 patients has on elective procedures scheduled to take place. Let's find out how that was managed at Parkway Pantai Hospital in Singapore. Dr. Noel, how is the COVID-19 situation in Singapore when it's about backlog of elective procedures, which is a intense discussion in the medical communities, what has happened so far with these patients and what is in this respect the situation in, in Singapore with the patients? Thanks again. Well, it's a good question. And I think today is the 2nd of September. So I, I did have some data that came in for the month of uh, August uh, on a year-to-date basis. I think there's been about a total of uh, close to 56,800 cases that has been detected in Singapore as of the end of August. We found that the breakdown so far is that we have 55,500 who have been discharged, right? So that, it, that only remains, right, uh, about 1,200 active cases in total, right? So it's a big number that has been discharged. Out of these 1,200 over cases, 70 are admitted in general wards, uh, while the rest are all admitted in the community isolation facilities. So these are the people that uh, I earlier on described as those who are stable, who have gone past the acute phase of the infection, and they can be moved to step-down care facilities. And that's what's been happening to them. So, so we only have 70 right now admitted, the rest of 1,100 or so in the isolation facilities. What is surprising to me in comparison to the other countries out there, is the mortality rate in Singapore. So on I mentioned, we have about 56,800 cases. There are only 27 fatalities uh, that we have experienced. I think nobody wants uh, you know, to have any deaths from it. But unfortunately, we know that there are deaths that will happen because there are people who are elderly. There are people who just have uh, other uh, comorbidities right, that would make them susceptible to so I think that this is something that um, the Singapore can be rather proud of. Uh, I really want to encourage the people of Singapore to you know, continue doing what they're doing right now and keep these uh, rates as it is. I think we all know about the size of Singapore. Singapore is a country with just about 5.3 million people staying here. So if, if you see that the total number of uh, 56,800, that's, um, you know, that's, that's rather significant if we compare it to other countries. Uh, but I also want to explain the situation in Singapore. So about um, 95% right, of that total number of cases uh, who are infected. These are all migrant workers who are staying in Singapore in dormitories. So I think we all know dormitories are accommodations with people living in close quarters. There are many of them staying in a single area, in a single compound. And that the unfortunate part was that there was a cluster that started among the migrant workers and it started to spread from dormitories 
to dormitories. Simply because, right, if migrant workers living in different dormitories, they mix together during their off days. Uh, the meaning that when they're no longer working, they will meet each other as a community out there. And because of their socializing, the illness started to spread to different dormitories. And this was the, the initial area of concern for uh, Singapore. That's why we had a, a, a quick surge in numbers uh, in the earlier months. The number of new community cases is very stable, average of just two cases a day over the last two weeks. And out of that, uh, unlinked community cases is only half. It's just one case per day over two weeks. So it has been quite optimistic right now, uh, so positive signs uh, in, in Singapore. But coming to the part where you ask about backlog of uh, elective procedures or healthcare demands, right? There were a pent up demand uh, when we, you know, when Singapore stopped the lockdown. Singapore actually went into lockdown for about six six weeks or so, uh, and we stopped all elective procedures. So there was a, a backlog of around two weeks of of bookings for our hospitals. I'm referring to private hospitals, right? Because I, you know, I work in a private hospital. So in uh, the private hospitals that we have, backlog was about two weeks and we managed to clear them uh, within the month. But I think the backlog at the public hospitals was perhaps more significant given their higher workload. But because I don't work there, I don't know what uh, sort of statistics. However, we have observed that uh, our local patients have recovered to pre-COVID-19 levels in the month of July. In August, which has just passed, right, uh, our local patient admissions right, is now 10% above the same month last year. So I think I can guess that there must be some patients who, who have needs, right? Healthcare needs. They were in the public healthcare system, but they have decided to move to private healthcare. So, uh, but, so I'm glad that uh, you know, we, we have the private hospitals being able to play a part to support uh, the overall healthcare needs uh, of the country. We're learning as we go through this pandemic. But the one thing we can be certain of is that preparation is the name of the game. How can we take what we've learned during the COVID-19 pandemic and apply it to the future? I mean, in Europe, you might have read this, yeah, we are facing rising numbers now in certain countries. Also in Germany, it's uh, unfortunately rising again. Not a direct comparison, but also travelers, vacation travelers, right? I think are contributing in Germany to 40% of all the current infections. Yeah, So it's the exchange, the crossing the borders and mm. this kind of behavior, which is uh, increasing the numbers currently. And uh, yeah, I believe uh, people need to stay cautious. We see also people are getting a little bit more relaxed. So what we do in uh, our company is also close communication, wearing masks, uh, social distancing, you know, washing hands and all the, let's say, relatively simple things, how you can protect yourself and, and the others. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we need to stay cautious still. This pandemic is not over. And what I'm hearing is uh, a little bit similar globally, by the way, in terms of elective procedures. Even in the US, you can hear numbers of routine diagnostic procedures, therapeutic interventions are getting back now to either 90 or 100%, and in some instances, even beyond the pre-COVID situation. Yeah, So this is pretty good in particular for the patients, you know, who might have waited for treatment 
which is certainly not easy if you suffer from, you know, things like cancer or cardiac topics. Yeah. Dr. Noel, how do you prepare your hospital at Parkway Pentai for a possible next wave pandemic? I think you know already how to prepare. Uh, so what are the learnings out of it and, and uh, how do you do this? Yeah, I think that we still go back to the broad strategy, right, of being able to test people first. So at our hospitals at, at Parkway Pantai, we are now still continuing to expand the testing capacity which our Parkway lab can provide to, you know, to people. Uh, at the same time, we still need to ensure that the tests are accurate as well as timely. Uh, presently, right, our daily testing capacity is about 4,500 tests a day. By the end of October, we would have uh, increased it to a capacity of about 7,500 tests a day. And our aim is to achieve an output of 10,000 COVID-19 tests a day, perhaps in about early 2021, uh, which is a quarter of our national target. So in Singapore, our Ministry of Health has set a, a national target of reaching daily testing capacity of 40,000. Uh, so we are aiming to be the lab that provides the most number, <laughs> which is a quarter of our national testing needs. The other point is that uh, apart from having testing capacity at our lab, the frontline right, must also have the capability to swap high numbers of people should we need to do mass testing. So therefore, we are still continuing to train our nurses in uh, the proper swabbing techniques. Presently, I think our hospitals have about 1,000 trained swabbers, uh, including myself. <laughs> and our aim is to have uh, a pool of about 1,500 swabbers uh, in early 2021. Uh, so that will then complement uh, downstream, right? We must have the swabbers to do the swab test. And then we will have downstream uh, our lab being having the capacity to test. So the third thing is that we also have to continue to maintain our isolation wards in the event a second or third wave hits Singapore. So every of our hospital in Singapore, we have four, by the way. So our four hospitals here, we have the isolation wards on standby uh, to receive COVID-19 patients should you know, the, the infection starts to increase again. Then finally, also with our commercial partners, right, we have started to prepare ourselves better to perform more intensive swabbing by using technology. So by technology, I'm referring to things like uh, having uh, swab booths that protect the swabber so that we, we may not need to utilize any PPE uh, for the swabber. Uh, we're also looking at new ways of testing people, like implementing drive-through swab stations, similar to SARS how some other countries have done so because it's also a safe way of testing, right? Because the person who comes in for testing sits in the car uh, is a confined space. For us, right, if we swap that person in the car, we don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to sterilize. We don't have to clean the interior of the car. I mean, that's left to the person who was tested uh, to, to work with. Yeah, so we've already done some pilot testing using the booths and the drive-through uh, stations. I think maybe my final comment on, on this part on preparing ourselves right, would be that we also would need to realize patients and you know healthcare providers, right? We're expecting to know that healthcare can no longer be just bricks and mortar uh, system, right? We have to look towards maybe new ways, uh, I would say non-mainstream ways of delivering healthcare, mobile medical services or teleconsults, e-pharmacies, right? There might be more use cases that arise uh, as a result of COVID-19. And we need to then 
transform ourselves digitally, use IT more so that we allow mobility of patients as well as the healthcare providers. And everyone now is getting more and more aware of patient-to-patient or person-to-person contact, right? Indirect or direct, because that is a means of transmitting infection. So therefore, I think patients as well as the healthcare providers are expecting to minimize contact during healthcare delivery wherever possible. Exactly. Yeah, so that is probably the new world that will that will arise or a new normal, which many people refer to coming from a post-COVID-19 era. And I think we have to start to, to develop more systems that are digital in nature, that we can utilize cloud, cloud-based cloud uh, to store medical records, for example. These are the things that uh, my organization is working towards and try to pilot some of them in 2021. This is incredible how the pandemic has uh, boosted digitalization on mm. the globe. You mentioned the isolation wards and, mm. uh, you know, you want to keep them reserved for COVID-19. Do you expect these beds and resources to remain beyond the pandemic, waiting for the next pandemic? Or would you reutilize these beds and you would reactivate this in case of a next pandemic or are you simply going to keep this? Good question. I, I think for us in Singapore, the private hospitals view themselves as resources that augments uh, the national capabilities. Because earlier on, I mentioned that uh, Singapore already has a specialty facility called the National Centre for Infectious Diseases. Right, It's the only facility in Singapore that has all the bids being under negative pressure. So that is the ideal place to, for Singapore to house uh, in people with uh, you know, pen, uh, infectious diseases and for treatment. The other hospitals, both public and private hospitals, serve to augment the resource. In the event that you know, we, we need to have more bids, right? in the event that the National Centre cannot accommodate the patients, then you need to create places for for these patients to overflow too. It's very similar to how we create overflow wards in our own hospitals. So at the national level, we must have hospitals that are on standby, ready for patients to overflow out of the national center for infectious diseases. But given the current situation, we know COVID is not yet over. We know that there might be uh, future waves once countries start to open up their borders, once we start to have people moving across uh, countries again, we might see some cases. So therefore, I felt that it is important for us to still maintain these isolation wards. But suppose we move into a new normal where either the infection is eradicated, whether the infection becomes endemic, that means it is something that we accept. Right? It is an illness that all of us know is out there, it's like flu. Right? If we ever reach that new normal, I would then say that isolation wards dedicated for COVID-19 would not be that necessary anymore. If it becomes something that people can accept or, or if we found uh, an effective vaccine right, and, and we have sufficient uh, immunity developed among our populations, I would then say that uh, isolation wards, especially for COVID, will not be necessary. But we do have the, our usual norms of uh, having certain negative pressure rooms uh, in our hospitals because that is the, the, the baseline preparation for other forms of infectious diseases. You, you might never know because you might have um, bird flu coming up again. You might have 
MERS, right, is always out there. Uh, you might have Ebola. So all these uh, uh, infections are still at large, though very much controlled and unlike uh, COVID-19 right now. I think you are making a great point. Yeah, everybody's talking about the pandemic around COVID-19. But when you think about all the other diseases, infectious diseases, a super important topic in general, right? And we should all, as you said, right, we should really learn from this pandemic and should use the knowledge for fighting other infectious diseases, obviously. Yeah. What I really like is also that you described this new way of how to deliver healthcare, which is also very much to our heart currently when we think about digital solutions, right, based on robots, digital solutions uh, in terms of helping for diagnostics, even for, you know, using robots for interventional procedures. So I think you are right, and we should probably keep this in the interest of the healthcare systems, but also in the interest of the patients to think really what you said, e-pharmacies, right, teleconsultation, all the, the advances now based on uh, or out of the pandemic, right, I think uh, pretty good things have been created so far and should be further created. And uh, it's it's great to see. And I was expecting this from Singapore, yeah, that you are in the midst of it and uh, you, you want to apply all these things then already now or in the upcoming year, yeah. As one of Asia's largest integrated private healthcare groups, Parkway Pantai have a network of hospitals throughout Singapore, Malaysia, India, China, and Brunei. How are standard operating procedures dealt with in such a large network? We talk quite a lot around Singapore. However, Parkway Pantai has a global footprint. Do you have SOPs, standard operating procedures for whole Parkway Pantai or different SOPs in different countries? How do you deal with it? It's a challenge, right? Yes, indeed it is a challenge. I think we perhaps don't have the same challenge like World Health Organization. <laughs> they, they are facing so much difficulty trying to coordinate the, the response against COVID-19 in, in different countries. But likewise, right, as you rightly pointed out, my organization does have a global footprint. We are in our home markets like Singapore, Malaysia, Turkey. We have growth markets in China and India. So we have to find ways right, to develop, as you said, standard operating protocols or procedures, but at the same time, allow each of the country divisions to be able to adapt uh, the SOPs to the local needs because every country is different. right? We have cultural differences, technological differences, right? everything is different. So how we do that here in Parkway Pantai is we have a global command center that is led by the group chief operating officer. So there will be group level SOPs developed and it will be communicated down to every country division. And each country division has its own command center. So for example, in Parkway Pantai, Singapore, the command center is checked by me. I will then take certain instructions from group level by the same time, I will adapt it to uh, the local context. And when I revise certain things, I will then pass these uh, policies or changes back up to the group level so that best practices can be shared you know, across uh, the, to the other countries. And that's how we continue to learn. Right? We, we always learn from one another. We also make small, small steps in learning. So you know, over time, these small little steps become a huge leap. 
So it's not only, a, let's say, it's not a top-down approach, you know, from Singapore into the other countries. It is the global command center where you create global SOPs, which then consecutively going to be adapted in the respective regions or yes, countries. Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah, this makes very much sense. By the way, we have we follow a similar principle. We have also our global crisis management team in place. Yeah, give also global guidelines. For example, the testing program I was yeah. explaining a few minutes ago. And of course, it is in the country's leadership discretion to make calls, uh, you know, what is needed in terms of testing and so on. Because if you have a lower infection rate, you might not benefit too much from, uh, you know, a heavy, intense testing. If you have uh, a situation, you know, like in the US or so, where you really deal with rising numbers in many states, yeah, it's different, right? You need to apply it in testing and so on. So it makes perfectly sense. But I think the beauty of this global footprint is really, as you stated, you can learn a lot out of it, right? So it's, I understood you are exchanging, you know, from the countries back to global, back to Singapore, where you can then use the different knowledges and experiences, putting this together and, uh, you know, learning how to deal with the pandemic even better, right? Yes, correct. What are the major challenges now in Singapore, Asia Pacific in general, right? Beside from COVID-19 and any ideas how we can meet them together? This is an interesting question. It kinds of a, a bit like a crystal ball right now. We need to see into the future and sort of uh, predict what might happen, what might change, right? Uh, I think if I think along the lines of what we are seeing today, in Singapore, in Asia PAC, even globally, we are seeing that the populations are aging. That is a fact. We all know and aging populations in, in many countries are resulting in increasing healthcare demands, especially conditions that are related to aging. Cardiovascular accidents, for example, cancers are becoming far more common these days uh, because they are associated with advanced uh, age. Now, the second thing that I would notice would be perhaps something related to affluency. So certain countries, as a result of becoming more affluent, they also experience increase in prevalence of chronic illnesses like diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and obesity. The third thing that would be a problem for, for us would be the control and prevention of communicable diseases, which we already have experienced and are experiencing right now. Because there's increased cooperation between countries in trade, education, it, that, that has led to much more movement of people and goods between countries. I think uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so, you have rec record numbers of people traveling between countries, right? Many countries are reporting record number of uh, freight cargo, shipping cargo, right, going to and fro. So from the COVID-19 experience, we also can see how quickly an infection outbreak can spread, right? Partly is due to the virulent nature, but also partly because of the number of people traveling between countries. I'm only talking about people who travel legally. <laughs> we also have people who are refugees, right? Refugees moving across borders. And that is a problem for, for many countries. So with all these challenges, you, you will see that there's an increase in disease burden for the future. We we'll also expect healthcare spending to rise. We'll expect to have shortage of healthcare resources if we do not work to, you know, to meet these demands. And we also have to consider that healthcare workers themselves, ourselves, you and me, we are also part of the populations. We are also equally at risk 
to aging, we're equally at risk to uh, diseases associated to affluency, and and you know we're also exposed to communicable diseases. So I'm thinking that that um, so that we have several broad solutions. Um, I don't have the specifics, but I think we can think along the lines where, firstly, healthcare systems right. We need to start shifting from the traditional acute care model, right, to something that is much more focused in prevention. In, in, in health screening. And similarly, funding of healthcare should eventually be based on the value of care, which why I'm referring to what patients value the most, and that is good outcomes, and that is prevention of, of diseases. Right? So funding has to fundamentally shift as well because if, if we continue to find most funding in acute care, then acute care keeps developing. The rest of the other... Uh, parts of uh, the healthcare model would then slow down. So therefore, I think it takes a lot of uh, political will, organi- organizational will, as well as uh, uh, you know people's uh, shift in their mindset towards healthcare. I think we also have to then step up education of our healthcare uh, professionals, right? doctors, nurses, allied health support services. Right, we need to speed up the training of these workers, make them make sure they are qualified, and make sure they understand what is value-based healthcare. They themselves must also appreciate this in order for the whole system to shift. And I think the last point that I, I also want to make is that we have so much data flowing nowadays. How do we use these data, healthcare data specifically? Right? Do, do we use the data to understand disease burden better? Can we use the data to plan for future needs? And in order to do that, we, we go back to the earlier discussion where we said digitization of healthcare must happen. The transformation needs to happen so that we can collect data easily, can analyze data using AI machine learning, right? and then we can present this data that is easily understood by healthcare workers, by patients. Because most of the time, you know, we are all uh, uh, healthcare professionals who are trained in clinical knowledge. We don't quite understand data analytics or IT. So we need to have better cooperation with people from other areas, other industries, right, to help us make use of that that data that we have. So I think some tools that we have we have seen over the years would be uh, electronic medical records, computerized physician order entries, closed loop medication management. Now we're moving to cloud-based storage, etc. Maybe Bitcoin will play a, a part in the storage or, or in, in funding. We need to learn how to use this better. Dr. Yeo shares an example of one innovation that has helped his organization. He spoke about telemedicine, e- e-pharmacy, use of AI, maybe even implementing facial recognition when registering patients. These are all things that we should consider and perhaps invest in. I will say on a personal basis, a good example that I've gone through would be to implement new innovation at our own Parkway Lab. Yeah, and that's in line with, uh, with what uh, Siemens have been doing. So our lab has a very good fortune of adopting the uh, actual automation system, right? which is something that uh, uh, Siemens Healthineers has. And actually, in hindsight right now, I felt it was one of the best decisions that we've made uh, over the last uh, two years in terms of healthcare investment because that system allows us to automate the entire process of the lab testing, hematology tests, biochemistry, chemical tests, we were able to improve our utilization of lab resources. We we increase our efficiency, speed up the overall processing. And the point is that the 
turnaround time becomes very consistent, very predictable. We were able to, to inform our clients. We were able to tell doctors how quickly or how soon you can get the test. Right? And I think the biggest point that became so apparent was that having these automation systems allow our staff to be contactless. When we received the test tubes, what we did was to, for the staff, what they did was to load the test tubes into the box input module. I think for people who are unfamiliar, it is a system where you just put all the test tubes inside. There's no need to line up. All you need to do is put the test tubes in. Of course, carefully, right? Don't throw it in. Put it gently inside, close it. The module will load it onto the belt. And then off it goes in the belt to the testing, to the centrifuging, to analysis, all right? And finally, the storage module. So it's amazing that um, what this uh, actual automation system can do and it addresses uh, our problems of insufficient uh, manpower resources, human fatigue, right? During COVID-19, everyone was so tired. Had we not had this system, I think my staff would be so so uh, worn out from COVID-19 testing they will not have the, the energy to, to perform routine testing, which has to go goes on, which must happen because we, we are not just dealing with COVID. We still have to deal with all the other conditions that still require diagnostics, requires testing to be done. So therefore, having that actual automation system was something I'm truly grateful for. I, I'd like to formally thank you uh, and your team in Singapore for helping us implement this system. It's something that our uh, lab staff Truly, truly appreciate uh, during these hard times. Big thank you uh, for your feedback, yeah, for your spontaneous feedback, uh, Dr. Noel. People cannot see you, but what I really like is I think we share the same passion for innovation. It's uh, nice to see this blinking in your eyes when you talk about innovations in healthcare uh, because <laughs> yes. it happens to me as well, right? <laughs> That's the, the beauty in the situation we are all in uh, with the pandemic, yeah. In terms of innovations, I mean, like workflow optimization, as you might know, you know, has been so important to us for decades. Yeah, so automation is very much to our heart, and of course, with uh, Atelica, I think we have done a masterpiece in terms of automation, as you described much better than I could do. You brought up a very interesting point, and I mean, we see this development under discussion in, in many other countries, yeah, going from acute care module uh, towards, you know, prevention, screening, early detection in general, which makes very much sense, value-based medicine. Do you expect this to be a faster development now because the discussions are going on and books have been published and so on? Or is it still a long runner, let me say, in your point of view, Dr. Noah? I think that the current times right, of COVID-19 has created this, this environment that has uh, allowed people to experience what working through digital platforms are like. Uh, people are getting used to it. The clients are accepting it. Patients are also accepting these changes. And therefore, I think there will be an increase in the pace of adoption. Uh, over the next few years, it might be much faster than what we expect. We are really not too sure. And because right, the, the various governments around the world, they also recognize there's a need. So once you have the alignment, you have the governments doing so, you have the private enterprises doing, you have the client, the customers demanding for this, the adoption will be very fast. And we, and we might start to see this new era far more quickly than what we expected. This is encouraging. Yeah. Dr. Noel, unfortunately, we have to come to an end. A super inspiring discussion with you. I have learned a lot. A final 
Easy question. You are looking great and healthy. How do you stay healthy in the current times being also a healthcare worker? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there's, there's just no secret to it. I, I keep myself uh, motivated through uh -huh. regular exercise. Okay, right? that's good. Eating healthy, I avoid consuming stimulants like uh, coffee, mm -hmm. like alcohol. I, I try to avoid them and I get a good night's uh, rest every day. And that helps and to keep me going. But you are wearing masks and all the other things, right? Social distancing and so on. Ah, okay. One point that since you brought it up. In fact, I want to say that the use of face masks, right, has proven to be very effective for me. Since Singapore started making face masks mandatory uh, somewhat early this year, around February, I, I have not had any upper respiratory tract infection since then. Okay, I, okay. Hey. I really have not experienced any. <laughs> Good. So that really shows how useful a face mask is right, in preventing transmission of uh, respiratory illnesses. Yeah, I fully agree with you. You speak from the bottom of my heart about this important topic. Yeah, so simple things can really help to protect us all. Yeah, And I think you are much more disciplined than I am because when it's about coffee, I need coffee. Yeah? So I have to admit But of course, we can learn from you how to stay healthy. Yeah? And my personal hope, by the way, since you talked also about healthy food, I hope there will be times when I'm going to be back to Singapore because you have really great restaurants in Singapore and oh, indeed you. a huge variety of uh, different foods. So uh, I'm looking forward to visit your country again. His sentiment is, is uh, shared by me. I would also love to visit Germany for the beers, especially <laughs> during October. <laughs> okay. Dr. Noel, it was, as I said, very uh, inspirational, a great honor uh, that you spent the time with me and the community listening to us. I can only thank you and uh, also congratulate to you and Singapore how you managed it. And I hope other countries are listening to you because you have to say a lot and we can all learn from you. Let's uh, keep the dialogue ongoing. And again, a big thank you. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you soon again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Christoph. Thanks for the opportunity. And I'm sure that um, Singapore also has much to learn from the other countries. So yes, let's keep the exchange going. Conversations must still happen. Thanks so much. Wrapping up today's episode, we know that globalization means free movement and greater collaboration. However, as Dr. Yeo points out, it also increases what he calls the disease burden. Pandemic illnesses are one of the costs we incur from traveling around the world, a reality that should be a driving force in the move to further digitalize modern medicine. Dr. Yeo also makes the point that the values of patients are centered around outcomes, so shifting funding from acute healthcare towards prevention is a change that could revolutionize the system as a whole. Thank you to Dr. Noel Yeo for joining us today, and a big thank you to you, our listeners. This has been another episode of Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Health and Ears. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.